Welcome to Phoenix and Flame, pushing through and transforming even when you feel like a pile of ash. This podcast is not intended for use as psychotherapy. If you feel you are in crisis, please call 911 or contact your local crisis hotline. Welcome to Phoenix and Flame. I'm Dana, and this is my podcast on pushing through and transforming even when you feel like a pile of ash. We have a guest with us today who is so funny and inspiring, and we have already just been bouncing back and forth before I was even able to hit record. So I'm like, wait a minute, stop, stop, stop. I have to hit record. We've got to get this on the podcast so all the listeners can hear what's going on. Steve, actually, after blowing up his life, which means his radio career, his first marriage, and his financial stability at the age of 35, he rose from the ashes. Now, I didn't tell him to say that, okay? That was in his bio. I want that duly noted. That was in his bio before he even came (laughs) to Feeding Some Flame. But he says he rose from the ashes to become a motivational speaker, a stand-up comedian, author, and more. After he spent an afternoon hitting golf balls in a thunderstorm, daring the lightning to hit him. Now in his 18th year as the motivational firewood guy, Steve Gamlin shares his back to basics blend of positivity and humor with corporate and conference audiences around the country. Steve Gamlin, welcome to Phoenix and Flame. Hey there, Dana. Thank you so much. And yes, um, Phoenix is a big part of my story because one of my stage stories is called Some Days Your Phoenix Rides a Pogo Stick. I saw that on your bio and I put a note here. I was going to ask you about that because I think we all understand. It's like, you know, you're up and down. And isn't that the nature of a phoenix, though? It just it burns it's ash and then it rises and then it burns it's ash and then it rises. It just kind of keeps doing that. So when you talk about your Phoenix being like a pogo stick, tell us kind of where you're coming from with that. You know, when I was 11, I wanted to be a radio DJ, a stand-up comedian, an author of my own books and a teacher of people, not in a classroom. When I was 24, a friend asked me why I'd never followed my dream of going on the radio. So I did it. Did radio for 10 years, flying high, got married somewhere in there, and then crashed the whole darn thing. And in the ashes of that came hitting golf balls in a thunderstorm. And a coach who asked a question that prompted me to become a speaker and a stand-up comic and start publishing my books. So we fly, we crash, we lose our tail feathers. I think I'm on my third or fourth set by now, but they're gorgeous. <laughs> and we just fly up again. And and my whole thing with the pogo stick is just every time I come out of those ashes, I just want to fly or bounce higher than I did the last time, which means I was paying attention. I learned the lesson. I became a better version of myself. And I took a lot of notes along the way. And mm-hmm. I love to blend the humor with that. And that's, you know, being just being authentic about my journey. The things I used to punish myself for being the stupidest things I ever did are now what people pay me to share on stage to inspire (laughs) other people. So I love sharing these stories. Well, that's great. We're we're a good match then because that's why I called my podcast Phoenix and Flame. Because as interested as I am in how we become the Phoenix, I am equally interested in what it feels like when we're on fire. Okay. What 
what is it? Because I feel like as a listener to my podcast, I have people out there and they are currently on fire. And I want them to know that they're not alone, that there's other people that have gone through horrible things, that if another person can experience it, can can weather it, can get through it, they can too. So I like to spend some time in what happened originally. You know, you talk about how your your whole life, just you talk about blowing up your life, your, your radio career, your marriage, your financial stability when you were just 35. Let's just hover over that for just a moment. I don't want to like go through this too quickly. What happened and what was that like? I worked about 15 years worth of hours in 10. I was you know, full-time in radio. Every couple of years, the radio stations I was at would get sold and the owners would come in or the general manager and say, hey, everybody, we're, we're going to be sold to this big company and they're going to put a big investment in. And every single time, as soon as the sale went through, we all got fired. So I got kicked in the nuggets as hard as I was working and as many awards as I was winning for my comedy and everything else I was doing, every couple of years, I just get kicked to the curb. And that happened twice. In the last radio station I was at, somebody came to me one day and said, hey, Steve, the owner is going through a divorce. He might have to sell the radio stations. And all those old thoughts came into my head going, I can't deal with this anymore. I can't go through that one more time. I'm running out of places in New Hampshire to work. And I had also owned a DJ business for nine of those 10 years because radio doesn't pay anything. So I'm just, I'm fried. I'm exhausted spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. I'm brittle and I'm falling apart. And my first wife and I were not communicating well because we were, I was not a very confrontational person and our energies didn't match. And it was just getting more and more frustrating. So I wound up just walking away from radio without even having a conversation with my first wife that I was going to quit my job. I just did it. That was a not very well thought out, very arrogant decision on my part. And then I realized when we got divorced shortly after, I was $62,000 in debt without a full-time job because I was not paying attention where all the money was going. And I had just taken out a $30,000 line of credit to build my own recording studio right after I quit my job. So I had nowhere to pay it back. I had no full-time job. I had a part-time DJ business that at the time was maybe making eleven five a year. And I was living at my dad's house. And if that's not a recipe for, oh my God, you are the stupidest human being on the planet every day in my mirror, that's pretty much how I woke up. I spent the first decade of the new millennium being about as brutally self-deprecating as you can be to yourself without taking yourself out. So let me just pause there for just a moment, because I end up talking to people that are in that space. And when we talk about people that come on podcasts and and they're successful now, but when we're going through it, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So if I heard you correctly, at that moment, you had, you'd lost your job yet again, because of how the radio industry functions, you had a lot of debt lost your marriage, living with your dad, and you were 35 when this was happening? Yeah, early midlife. So, yeah, and I just <laughs> I just want to kind of just pause there and say that was your experience then. And when we're experiencing that, like I said, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I can pull, pull people to my mind right now that are in really what feels like very hopeless places of their life. 
and they don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the future holds, but at that particular moment, it feels very hopeless. And it sounds like you had a lot of components that really created a, a storm of what could have been hopelessness. Yeah. Despair. Yeah. I had no idea what I was going to do. Some people said, Steve, just go back to radio. Let, you know, calm down a little and go back to radio. I said, I don't want to go back to radio. It's like going back to, to be in a relationship with somebody, you know, is eventually going to cheat on you. Mm. That's what it felt like. I, I felt like the industry kept betraying me over and over and over as hard as I worked. You know, the, the second time it happened, I found out three weeks later, I had won the largest award the radio stations had ever received for a comedy bit that I wrote, a commercial parody about, you know, like the old Motel 6 commercials. Yeah. You know, we'll leave a light on for you. Well, I wrote yeah. one called Manger 6. It was like a biblical reference thing. And it won first place out of all radio stations in the United States, Canada, Mexico, and England for about a minute and 20 second parody that I wrote and produced. And yet they fired me. And that, that hurt for a long time, but then I didn't know what I was going to do at age 35. Wow. And so people would see you and, and other people like you that are winning awards or these kinds of things, and they don't know the backstory. And that's one of the reasons why I, I say frequently on Phoenix and Flame to not be judgmental of people, no matter what you think you know, because you don't know the backstory. You don't understand what that person has gone through. You don't understand what their life is like. You might think you do. You don't. And so somebody might have seen you winning this big award and thinking, well, you've got the world by the tail. And that's not really what was going on. Now, was it about this time that you're out in the thunderstorm with golf clubs? <laughs> mm -hmm. It was, uh, yeah, right about that time. It was actually, it's the 20th anniversary of that this month. And uh, on a Friday afternoon, I, I was just still trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I was just out running errands one day and I had $3 in my pocket and I drove past this mini golf place that had a driving range couple towns away. And I said, well, I'll just go take out my frustrations on a bucket of golf balls. You know, just, yeah. just get the aggression out. That's all. Just every ball had a name. It was something about my life or what I'd done to it that I was mad at. And I was hitting like 200 plus yards because I can't shoot yeah. straight, but I can hit hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the farthest tee box on the property because I'm a horrible golfer and I didn't want to dent anyone's car. So I'm, I'm at the very edge under these big giant steel towered power lines. Which, by the way, make an awesome noise when you can actually hit them. Hmm. So I'm hitting away, hitting away. It's a hot, humid Friday afternoon in New Hampshire, and a thunderstorm came through. I mean, a severe thunderstorm. Thunder, lightning, driving rain, wind, everything. And everybody but me ran from the storm. And I hit my bucket of golf balls. And as I was looking around, I saw two almost full buckets from a couple of the gentlemen who ran from the storm. And I looked around and go, hmm. they're paid for. I hit theirs, too. And at one point, I just, because sarcastic and humor has just always been a part of me. And I was not mad at God for the people who say, you shouldn't be mad at God. I was not mad at God. It was like my Lieutenant Dan moment on the shrimp boat in the hurricane. Like, you call this a storm? Come on, I'm right here. <laughs> Held up the club and looked up and just said, I dare ya. And nothing happened. So I just went back and hit the rest of the golf balls. <laughs> and when I got to my car, I could hardly lift my arms. And when I put my key in the door, the rain stopped and the sun came out and I just started laughing. I look up and I'm like, 
well played. (laughs) (laughs) And the next day I'm on a phone call with my then brand new life coach who I only was working with because I knew his wife from networking. He was in a band. She knew I had a recording studio. He asked if I would trade recording time for coaching time. And I said, yes, because I was his first client. And his first question was, how was your week? And I told him the story as funny as I could make it sound, brutally self-deprecating, but funny mm-hmm. about that one hour hitting golf balls in a thunderstorm. And when he stopped laughing, which is something that coaches shouldn't do when their clients' lives <laughs> really suck. But when he stopped laughing, he goes, I got two questions. Are you this open and honest and authentic about your life with everybody? And I said, yeah. And he asked, have you ever thought of being a motivational speaker or a stand-up comedian? I think you'd be really good at both. He didn't know that those were two of my four goals when I was 11 years old. Wow. And I said, I said, yeah, I've wanted to do both, but I don't know if I have the confidence or I don't even know how to pursue each one. And then he laughed again and he said, in the junk mail pile on my desk, there's a brochure from a local community college. Um, they have an intro to stand-up comedy class that starts in two weeks. Do you want to go? Yeah. And have you ever heard of Toastmasters? Kind of. He goes, you got it. He goes, just go in there and fine tune it and work on your tools. That's all. And that was the moment my life changed. That golf club is in that corner of my recording studio. And I've never forgotten that moment. It, it changed, literally changed my life. And it still impacts me today. The lowest point of my life in the ashes, <laughs> tail feathers on fire. so not the hollywood version that you and i hear from so many people like you know the clouds part and the phoenix you know rises and the majestic and the angels going ah nope (laughs) you know it's rarely like that is it you know it's it just kind of it just feels like a non-moment when you look back at and some really important times they just at the moment though they don't feel like much of anything most of the time it was just another day looking in the mirror calling myself an idiot that's all it was at the time. Yeah. And then when I learned the power of self-talk, thanks to a, a another dear friend who put on his steel-toed boots and kicked me in part of my body, my doctor only gets to see once a year. <laughs> after, after he heard me doing a self-deprecating meltdown on his stage, I was running out of material and I was in a bad mood that day. And I, I went back and, and beat myself up over some life things. Now, I made them funny, but... He said, if I ever hear you talk about yourself like that again, A, we're not going to be brothers anymore. And B, you'll never set foot on one of my stages. Mm. That was in 2011 when I finally said, okay, that's it for that. That approach is over. The adorably pathetic comeback story. Dude, you're better than that. And if you don't build yourself up or at least acknowledge yourself and respect yourself in the mirror, how the hell can you expect anyone else to? You can't. So, so that's how when I are made you friends able with to, myself. To, to turn that around? Because I, I talk to a lot of people, again, being a, a psychotherapist and, and, and professionally, personally, it's like, how did you turn that around? How are you able to, because it's one thing to say, you need to look in the mirror and think this or view yourself this way or think positively and all that sounds nice, but how were you able to actually do it? Yeah. Well, my industry is so full of crap with a lot of the, the, the people in programs and just believe, you know, and all of that. Okay. I actually started doing something that seemed real silly at the time, but now I have all my clients go through it. And I, I just, I grabbed a slip of paper and I put it in the bathroom and each morning for a week, I just looked at myself in the mirror 
and started at the top of my head and just worked my way down. And when I saw something I thought was kind of cool, interesting, or I liked, loved, or even respected about myself, I would write it down. So I had a week to write down seven positive things about myself and then realize that there's so much more than that. But if the first thing you're seeing every day is that you're a moron because of something you did 12 years ago, then you probably need to work on your wiring because mm -hmm. you're paying attention to old stories. And when I do that with my clients now, my visualization clients, I say, look, I'm going to give you day one because it probably feels really foreign and really weird. And you're probably not going to do it if you don't get past day one. So you're going to start at the top of your head. You're going to keep going down. You're going to shake your head. You're going to roll your eyes and you're going to realize, holy crap, my socks match. <laughs> Write that down. But you can't do the socks thing again. Mm. You got to pick something else the next day. And sometimes by day three or four, my clients reach out and they go, hey, Steve, I have really cool eyes. Yeah, I know that. I'm glad you know it. Or I get a really cool laugh. Or I get cute dimples when I smile. So I want to smile more. I'm like, oh, how cool is that? Because you found I something like that, that. that only happens when you're happy or joyful. So now you want to do that so you can see it more. And then when you see it, trust me, other people see it and they feel it. It's, it's that silly and weird, but it works. What I'm hearing you describe and say is that everyone has the old stories, the, the trauma, sometimes it's trauma laden and, and sometimes it's not, but still the negative narratives of old that are still driving the ship, so to say. And what I'm hearing you say is that you intentionally created space for a new story to provide some balance, at least at the very least, to provide balance to all of the old stuff that keeps pushing to the forefront of the mind. That, that exercise in the mirror was intentionally creating something new to combat the old. Yeah. Yeah. And this is right about the time that I realized that when I was 13 years old, 99 of percent of my friends went to one junior high and I went to another with one other kid that I knew. So my confidence was already kind of brittle because I was super popular at my up till grade six, great grades. Teachers loved me, had a lot of friends. Yeah. Go to this new school where nobody knows me, still getting good grades, but very uncomfortable, shy and, and no confidence. And I get embarrassed in the spelling bee in English class that spring. And I did the walk of shame all the way back to my chair. And what I didn't realize for more than 20 years was that I, that was the day I stopped raising my hand in class and my grades started to slip. It, it was like a World War II plane being shot. Like now the planes just explode because we use missiles and bombs. But back then it would, you know, get a bunch of holes in the fuselage and you'd leak a little oil, then there'd be smoke, then there'd be flame. And basically you would just trail smoke until you crashed. I got shot in seventh grade. And I trailed smoke until I graduated college by 62 one thousandths of a point from not getting invited to graduation. Wow. My first eight of 10 years in radio, I was not a DJ. I was an off-air rock morning show producer, did great at it, won awards for comedy, did all this stuff, didn't use my voice, didn't have the confidence until about the eighth year when our morning guy quit. And the owner was going to put our station that we'd taken off satellite and made live without his knowledge. He was going to put it back on satellite. And I raised my hand and go, guys, I've been doing this for eight years. I, I, come on, I'll, I'll just do the morning show. And in parentheses in my head, I'm going, never been on the microphone. But 
So what followed was about four days of the worst sounding DJ you've ever heard because I tried to make my voice sound different every break to find, you know, my style. Right. And it was, it was laughable how bad it was. And that Friday morning at like five minutes to seven, knowing the ax was going to come down, I just came out of a song and said, hey, everybody, Steve here. New Hampshire's classic rock, big 101.5. You know, I may suck as a DJ, but if you tolerate me reading the weather for the next 42 seconds, I'll play you a kick-ass rock song. <laughs> Read the weather, hit the song, sat down, shook my head and went, oh God. And then my boss leans his head in the door with a huge smile and he goes, brother, that was the funniest thing you said all week. Dude, just be yourself. That was great. That, that was about awesome. the year 2000. So 23 years ago, that was the first brick in any foundation of confidence that I had. And then I wound up quitting radio and became a speaker. But if that moment hadn't happened to undo what had happened when I was 13, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't be on this well, call with you. I mean, wow. And you look back <laughs> and you realize how impactful it was at the time. You didn't know. But what what I'm hearing you say is that you were willing to do two things. One, you were willing to try something new that you had never done before. And you could have said, no, that's not me. I that's I've never done that. I'm not going to do that. Find somebody else or you're just going to have to put put it on satellite, do whatever you need to do, because that's not me. Look for someone else. But you didn't. You were willing to step out into an area that you'd never done before. And then when you really started getting traction, if I heard you correctly, correctly, was that when you finally got to the point where you were able to just accept who you were, that you were just, hey, guys, you know, I, I may not have the best voice, but if you can listen to me, you know, get through this weather, then I'll play you a kick-ass rock song. And that was just you saying, this is me. And I think those two things happening really possibly helped you turn that corner. Yeah. And, and if my boss hadn't stuck his head in the door and smiled and, and rewarded or acknowledged that moment, I, I probably would have 15 minutes later sounded different again. And a matter of fact, I just called him. I, I haven't seen him. I've seen him maybe twice in the past 20 years. I called him the other day because I was laughing, thinking of a memory. And he, he still says, he goes, I remember. He goes, oh, you were so horrible, but I didn't want to go down and tell you because you were trying. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> but when you did that, he goes, I had to, I couldn't just call you. I had to run down to the studio and tell you that was awesome. And it was, I mean, that was one of those moments right out of the fire. Cause I, I just kept throwing myself back down and they're just, oh, I suck at this. Da, da, da. You got to be so careful about that. You know, it's not, it's not an egotistical thing or arrogant thing to say, Hey, you know what? I'm pretty good at this. I can get better, but I got a good foundation. I didn't believe in my own voice until he told me that just being myself was the right sound. So now everything I write, everything I post on social media, everything I say in a conversation, everything I do in a video or on stage, it's all the same voice. So I wanted to make sure that we have plenty of time to talk about, because you talked about your vision board mastery and your motivational firewood. I really, I want to have time for you to kind of explain, you know, you, the rising, you know, what you, what you created from your experience and your honesty and your acceptance of yourself. And then what you, what you created from that. Yeah. Right about the same time, Shortly after the uh, the golf clubs in the thunderstorm, 
my coach asked me if I'd ever heard of The Secret, which had just come out on DVD at the time, which is all about the law of attraction and, and you know, creating a better version of yourself. And I had not heard of it. So I went and got the DVD and I watched it nine Sunday nights in a row. Some of it I thought was way too woo woo, way too just wow and out there, you know, a genie in a magic lamp who just, all he ever says is your wishes might command. Not enough for me. Sorry. Dismissed, dismissed. But about two thirds of the way through this guy named John Asaraf, who I'd never heard of before, spent three minutes talking about this thing that he used called the vision board, where he put pictures of things he wanted on a board and just kept it where he could see it. And he realized he had manifested some of the things that he wanted in his life. And I was so fascinated by that. It's like planting a seed for something you want. Now, most of his was material stuff, and I'm not a material guy. But I thought, well, relationship-wise, my life is in the toilet. Financially, in the toilet. <laughs> All the other business, in the toilet. And I said, well, what if I started to set goals for each of these areas in my life? And I put together my first couple of vision boards. They were all material things because I was broke. And after about three weeks, I said, there's nothing on here I want except for, you know, the recording studio. And I finished building that. And after that, I started to say, well, okay, I only want to fall in love one more time in my life. So I want to make sure I am the best version of me for whoever she may be. And I didn't go on a single date for a year. And then I only dated one person for a little while, but it was just dating because I was still working on me. And in January of 07, I said, this is the year I'm going to discover her, whoever she may be. And I ended that first relationship as maturely as I could. And then I wrote down in the first week of June of 07, I am ready to fall in love. And 10 days later, I got an email from a woman I hadn't seen or spoken to in 21 years from at that point, a thousand miles away, reaching out. And I almost deleted it because I thought it was spam. Thank God I didn't. <laughs> The next day, I opened it up again, and I said, oh my gosh, it's Tina from high school, who I'd sat next to for three years in math class. And I sent an email back, and she sent an email back with her phone number. Three days later, I called her. First words out of her mouth after 21 years were, it's about time he called. And I laughed, and I said, still sarcastic, funny Tina. <laughs> <laughs> she would not send a picture of herself. She had no social media footprint. But over the next four weeks, I remembered via phone, text, and email. I'd had a crush on her for three years in high school and never asked her out. Whoa. And four weeks after that first email, she asked me. I was DJing a wedding where I wasn't even supposed to be or scheduled to be. We know I was supposed to be there. Sent me a text. Can I tell you something if you promise not to freak out? I said, sure. Here's how I really felt about you in high school. When I saw your name online, when I sent you an email, when I heard back, when I heard your voice, I love you. So we spent the whole summer of 2007, a thousand miles apart, completely blind, eyes closed, hearts wide open. We just celebrated our 16th anniversary earlier this summer. Wow. And I still tell her to this day, babe, if you ever end our relationship, just know you're going to demolish my speaking career. She goes, I know. <laughs> Wow. So that's my, I mean, people say, oh, you're lucky. No, if you knew the story, if you knew how much pain was so far back and just wanting to create a better version of myself and figuring out what that looks like, feels like, sounds like, smells like, tastes like, 
all all the senses and all the emotions went into me designing the one more fall in love relationship that I wanted to have for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Right down to us making dinner together at least four nights a week in our kitchen. That's where the smells and tastes come in. I mean, all of that into building the greatest relationship. And that's just one of eight areas of life that I set goals in and that I coach people on. Wow. So you really kind of help individuals sort of not only get the larger picture of, you know, what are these eight areas, which I'm interested in you kind of sharing, but then also like drilling down, unpacking each particular area and and giving them space and, and an opportunity to say, okay, what exactly do you want? And encouraging them to think about that, because I think so many of us are just kind of stumbling through life. And we just kind of, we think we know what we're after, but we're not really sure. I'll tell you something. I'll take a brief, just a minute here and say, I was rebranded a couple of, uh, was about a year and a half ago. And that process was infuriating. (laughs) I'm brutally honest about it. It I mean, it was, it was wonderful and needed and amazing, but it also annoyed the shit out of me because it forced me, I'm, I'm a, a large picture kind of person. And like in, for my personal life, not with my patients, I'm, I'm very patient with them. And I sit down and I unpack all these little minutiae areas. But in my own life, I'm like a, you know, get the, you know, I'm a, just a large, large kind of vision kind of person. I minutia is tedious things annoy me. And so I was forced to sit down and answer all of these questions about all of these areas of my life. And I thought I was going to scrape my face off, but it was, it was important and it was necessary. And I I'm, I'm hearing you say that that's what you help your clients do, that you help them understand what are the main areas and whether you want to or not, whether you feel like you're going to scrape your face off or not. And those are the people like me that probably needed it the most that they're going to, sit down and think about creating that vision board about what do you really want in these particular areas. And that really requires intention that a lot of us just don't provide. We just don't do it. Yeah. Well, look at, look at the language that gets taught to us, you know, for our lives. I'm 55 years old and I'm still hearing people saying, well, you got to get that work life balance thing. I'm like, Oh dear God, work life. Now, I use a standard life wheel, pretty pretty common thing in the personal development world. I've tweaked it a bit to how I teach and what I teach. There are eight spokes in the wheel. You got your physical health, your emotional well-being. Imagine that, setting goals for the emotions you want to feel every day. Your relationships, your core values that guide everything you do, your thoughts, your words, and your actions. Your faith and spirituality, if that's an important part of your life, which do the same thing from a different direction. Your connection to the world in a real way that's gotten tested big time over the past four years, your work and your money. And people think that's a lot. I said, well, put it this way. They're all interacting and working together 24-7. So wouldn't it be a good freaking idea to have some say in the way your wheel's rolling? And when they still feel overwhelmed, I say, look, you can do one thing in one category. It's going to impact every single other one in a positive way. Like just take, for example, your physical health you choose to eat better, you walk more, you drink more water, you do less of the things that are harmful to you, you exercise, you do that every day, you have more energy, you sleep better, you wake up, you're more focused, 
You do that, you're more focused. You can work more efficiently. You work more efficiently, you can get more done. You get more done, you can earn more money. You earn more money, you can buy back a little time and freedom and improve the quality of your relationships. You do that, your emotions are better. And also, when you're doing your work and you're more interactive, your connections are better with people. And if you do it in such a way that it aligns with your core values, you never have to look over your shoulder or up at the sky waiting for a bolt of lightning to hit you. So by choosing to take care of physical health, you've just impacted all eight areas of your life in a positive way. It doesn't take a ton of work. You don't have to rewire the whole thing. Mm. But you start and understand how tied together these things are. And I encourage people who are very overwhelmed, give me one one-year goal in each one of these categories. One year. Don't give me this in 20 years. I want to have this. It's okay to have those. What's one year's worth of progress towards that? Let's start there. I'm not one of these people who says, disrupt your entire life and take massive action every single day. You are going to scare the hell out of some people. <laughs> yes. You are. And they're within a day or two or three, they're going to be done and right back to their old habits. And now you've completely cut them off from that potential future because they ran screaming back to their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So for me, give me some one-year goals. What's one, you know, I, the most common one, and I coach a lot of guys and couples on this, relationship goals. Well, I want a happier marriage. What does that mean? We want to go on date nights. Okay, how often? Two a month. Awesome. And I wrote down a, a little slip of paper and it said, hashtag date night. And I took a picture and sent it to him. I said, make one of these, fold it up, put it in your pocket. Every time you go somewhere, I want one of you to hold this up, the other one to take a selfie. Make sure the background indicates where you are. And you share that picture on social media or just keep it to yourselves. The end of the year, you put them all in a collage, you print them out, you frame it, you hang it on your wall, and there's your 24 date nights for the year. Enjoy your improved relationship. That's awesome. That's how you this know, works. Steve, I feel like we could we could really spend 30 more minutes talking about all of this stuff, but I want to really make sure that my listeners know how to get access to you, because if I know that they're listening to you and they're hearing what you're saying and they're going, I really resonate with what he's saying. He's, he's authentic. He's been there. He's real. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's doing. He has small behavioral bite-sized goals that I can really do. How do I get a hold of Steve? So the, what I have here, let me make sure it's correct. Your website is basically your name, stevegamlin.com. That is, is correct. correct. Yeah, G-A-M-L-I-N.com. Okay. And, and I will have all that in the the show notes uh, for listeners who maybe are out, you know, jogging or doing something that they can't really write anything down. I've got it in the show notes. So, Steve, I just really appreciate your time and your willingness to, to come on the show. As everyone else, I'm sure that you're super busy and have all kinds of things to do. But I'm so thankful for you and what you've been through and what you've built from it and your willingness to reach out and be so helpful to other people. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me for this conversation. And um, I, I got a good feeling it's not going to be our last time talking with each other. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. So guys, I know that you have heard so many things in this podcast today that you're thinking not only with you really could benefit from and apply in your life because I'm all about application and practicality because if we can't apply it, what's the point? But also you're thinking, I have a friend, I have a coworker, I have a relative that, oh my gosh, they need to hear exactly what Steve is saying. Please, listeners, take this episode 
and share it. If you need to copy and paste the link in a text or in a, in your uh, on email, if you want to take it and share it on your most favorite social media sites, do whatever you need to do to get the message out there so we can grow our Phoenix and Flame community where we're reaching out to one another, knowing that we're all in this together and we're helping one another. I hope you've had a wonderful day. I hope the rest of your day goes fantastically. This is Dana on Phoenix and Flame.